Well, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 9 to 12 is what we're going to read again this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 9 and read down through verse 12 together. We're still in the midst of this series entitled One, looking at unity in an age of division. And so as we look at some of these truths that the Bible says ought to bind us together as a church, as a body of Christ, as fellow believers, regardless of where we meet on Sunday mornings, uh, that's our hope. That's what we've been aiming at through this series. And so we continue to do that this morning. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, Peter writes these words, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, uh, speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Those who know me well know that I, one of my hobbies that I'm passionate about is bass fishing. Okay, I've been bass fishing since the time that I was a child. Uh, my parents, would, my dad would take me out on the boat, we'd go fish. Most of the time, I got really bored really quick as a young child, and so I would always, I'd had to bring toys to play with or cut the fishing trip short, right? Uh, but as I got older, my attention span grew, particularly I moved into adulthood. I just, I, I have a passion to fish. I love to catch fish. That's been passed down to one of my children as well. He's caught that disease, and I think he probably is more passionate about it than I am these days. Um, but one of the things I had to learn as a child, and I'm still learning at, at times whenever I'm out on the boat, um, is, is how to cast into the wind with a light lure to keep from backlashing. Now, what a backlash is in bass fishing, in an open face reel, is whenever you cast that rod out there and the line begins to peel off and there's resistance coming back at it from the wind, right? Uh, it can, that line on that spool, if it's not set correctly, it can just all unravel. And so it becomes what's called in the bass fishing terms a bird's nest, okay? So you got this big bird's nest and it's all this line that's come out of the reel because the spool wasn't set correctly, and it's all gotten tangled around itself, okay? And so what you intended to be like the perfect cast to lay it up right next to a log or a stump or a rock, because that bass is laying right there, and you know that he's going to suck it in, and you're going like, to, all of that's out the window now, and you're peeling out line, right? You're trying to pick apart this bird's nest, proverbial bird's nest, this backlash out of the reel so that your line can actually function the way that it was supposed to function again. There have been times in my hmm, fishing experience that I have not been able to pick out that line. I've actually had to cut out that line, okay, because the backlash was so bad. You just grab the scissors and say, I'm done with it, right? i got to cut all this stuff out to get back down to where the good line is so that I can retie and make sure I can continue to fish, right? Because the line gets wrapped around itself and tangled up on itself. And listen, one of the reasons, church, that there is so much division, not only within our culture, but within the church, is because oftentimes 
what God intended to be a distinct entity has become wrapped up and entangled in cultural wrappings. Okay? See, what the church was, the church was never intended to feel at home in any one particular culture even though it is at home in every culture. It was never intended to be at home in any culture. And oftentimes, what happens as churches emerge, or churches are planted, or churches grow, or they mature, is that the church oftentimes, the capital C church, right, at times can become entangled with the culture around it in such a way that it doesn't function any longer the way that God designed it and intended it to function. Because while the church ought not be home in any culture, it's at home in every culture because it speaks into every culture, can celebrate aspects of every culture, and critique aspects of every culture. Because that's what the church is intended to be as strangers and aliens. Strangers and exiles is the language Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 2. Right? Not at home in any culture, at home in every culture celebrating and critiquing aspects of every place that it finds itself, but not becoming entangled and no longer functioning the way God intended. And I believe in this passage, these descriptors, two of them we looked at last week, as we looked at the church being a chosen race and a royal priesthood. This week we'll take a look at a people for God's own possession right, and a holy nation. And these descriptors in the text give us clarity and where we might need to cut away some of that line that's gotten entangled in cultural trappings. And so that's what I want us to do this morning as we look at these two descriptors to see this shared identity that we have as a church, right? Because identity informs purpose and purpose creates unity. We said it last week, I'll say it again this week, right? And so where do we start? We start, we're going to start with the second descriptor here, and the, the last one that Peter gives here, when he talks about the church being a people for his own possession. Here's what I'll say, church, is that the church is beloved by and belongs to God. It's beloved by and it belongs to God. I've talked to, we've talked a lot in the past in sermons on this very text about the church being beloved by God. And this morning where I want to drill down is on this issue of the church belonging to God. It belongs to God. So this language in 1 Peter 2, it comes out of the Old Testament in several places. Several places in the Old Testament, God calls the people of Israel His treasured possession. His treasured possession. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, we read these words, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So in other words, following Deuteronomy essentially means this, the second giving of the law. Right? I love uh, the way I just explain it to the kids in Axis on Wednesday nights when I was teaching through a text in Deuteronomy was this, is that Moses, God's prophet, right, before the people of Israel go into the promised land, he preaches a really, really, really long sermon. You guys think I preach for a long time, right? Deuteronomy is just like a really long sermon in a second giving of all the law that God had given to His people. And in that, he recounts the story of the nation of Israel having come out of slavery and captivity and bondage in Egypt, 
right? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And before they go into the promised land, Moses reminds them that they are God's treasured possession and that he has chosen them out of all the peoples of the earth to be his, right? Following their rescue, Right? And in, in Israel's day, they would have been a nation just like any other nation, like any other geopolitical entity on the face of the earth. And yet, Peter grabs that language, incites it from the Old Testament to apply it to the church, to tell the church that it is God's treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. Right? So we saw last week a chosen race, a people made up of all peoples, and a people for God that He would possess, that would belong to Him, and they would be His priceless possession. Now, I know some of you guys have priceless possessions, don't you? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like for me, when I was a kid, it was my baseball card collection. It's my priceless possession. Now I've still got pieces of cardboard laying around under beds in my house that I keep thinking one day I'm going to hit the jackpot again, right? They're going to go up in stock one, one more time, right? But they just keep laying there. Priceless possessions, right? When, when, you know, some of you, it's, it's a home. Some of you, it's a, a vehicle. Some of you, it's all kinds of things. Might be things that you have made, things that you've pressed a part of yourself into that become priceless possessions, something that you love deeply or willing to risk greatly in order to rescue whenever it is threatened, right? So it may be, right, a spouse or a child that you cherish above all things, right? So if your home were to catch on fire, right, some of you would go after your children. You would go after your spouse. If your kids are out of the house or if your spouse is not there, you might go after a journal, right, where you have recorded your emotions and God's responses to your prayers. You might go to grab that thing that you've pressed so much of yourself into, right, because it's a priceless or treasured possession, Right? Our investment in them makes them so valuable. And listen, church, I want you to be aware of something, that God has indeed pressed Himself into us. We saw it in the first installment of this series that we're created in God's image, that we bear God's likeness. But if you're a Christian in the room this morning, somebody who's repented of sin and trusted in Jesus, you belong to God not only by virtue of creation, but also by virtue of redemption. That at great cost, He came to rescue you when the world was burning down. And you had nothing to look forward to other than hell. That He sends His Son to redeem you and rescue you. And so He's brought out of every man and every woman and every child on the face of the earth, God's chosen some to be His treasured possession. And we belong to Him doubly by virtue of creation and redemption. The church belongs to God. It is His. It is His, church. Now, why? Why does He choose us? And the short, is it, was there anything that when God looked down upon us, it made God think, right, what did He see in us? The short answer is this, nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. I love the way John Calvin puts it. He says it this way. He says, there is a contrast between us and the rest of mankind to be considered. Right, And he says, it appears more fully how incomparable is God's goodness towards us, for he sanctifies us who are by nature polluted. 
He chose us when He could find nothing in us but filth and vileness. He makes His peculiar possession from worthless dregs. He confers the honor of the priesthood on the profane. He brings the vassals of Satan, of sin, and of death to the enjoyment of royal liberty. God didn't see anything in us worthy of meriting His choice of us, but He chooses us, we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 7 once again, because He loves us. That's what He told Israel in the Old Testament. It says this in Deuteronomy 7, Verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Moses says God chooses because God loves and God loves because God loves. There was nothing in us that merited the choice of God. Nothing in us that made us worthy of the love of God. But God, out of free choice, out of free, unconditional love, set His affection on us to be His treasured possession, to belong to Him. And listen, church, I know we're used to, especially over the course of the last 12 months, binging on certain things, okay? Right? Some of us have binged on Netflix, okay, over the course of the last 12 months, right? Especially when the kids, like, weren't really doing school, but they were doing school, but it wasn't really school, right? Back at the end of last year, when everything was just kind of, like, crazy moving around, it's like 30 seconds of school in a day, and then 30 hours of Netflix, right, for the next two days, okay? So we binge on certain things. And I tell you, the church needs to binge on this truth that it belongs to God, that it belongs to God. The church does not belong to the Democrats. And it doesn't belong to the Republicans. It doesn't belong to the Libertarians. And it doesn't belong to the Independents. The church doesn't belong to any political party. The church doesn't belong to big tech or to national, state, or local officials. It doesn't belong to His. It belongs to Him. He has the prerogative to lead the church to make changes. He has a prerogative to lead churches to merge for the sake of the gospel, to work together for the sake of the gospel, to come together in their communities to advance God's kingdom purposes where they are. The one who has possession has the prerogative in the same way that you can decide if you're going to lend your lawnmower to your neighbor because it's yours. It is a set-apart society. Once again, this language of a holy nation is rooted in the Old Testament in Exodus 19.6. We read, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, the word holy in the Old Testament, it literally means this, to separate or to cut away. Okay? So in, in terms of its use to describe God's people, it meant that they were cut out from the cultures in which they found themselves. Right? They, were, they were not supposed to be separatists, okay? right? where they go and just form their own little enclave and don't engage with anybody around them, but they were to be separated, distinct, cut out from the cultures in which they found themselves. See, when God says this to the people of Israel following their rescue from Egypt, He means that Israel would be, in a normative sense, a nation. They would operate under, in human history, first as a theocracy, under the authority of God as king and God alone, then as a monarchy, right, with Saul and with David and with Solomon and subsequent kings who had all kinds of checkered 
results in Israel's history. The nation of Israel would also, though, have a particular culture, ways of seeing things and doing things that was to be defined by God's commands as he lays them out in his law. Israel was to be a set-apart society in the midst of these cultures who worshipped and served foreign gods. They were to be beholden to and belong to God. So also with the church. Because with the coming of Jesus, God demonstrates in the most ultimate of ways that His heart, His heart is not for one nation state or one ethnicity. That His heart is for all the peoples of the earth whom He has made in His image. We saw it a few weeks ago in Ephesians 2. This one new man being formed in a chosen race from earlier in this verse. Right? That God demonstrates His love for all of humanity in the sending of His Son. Which means this, that Peter, here in this text, that he's not talking about any one particular nation state. Okay? He's not talking about Argentina, and he's not talking about America. He's not talking about the U.S., he's not talking about the UAE, and he's not talking about the EU. Okay? And any other collection of letters that you want to put together. He's not talking about any particular nation state. He's not talking about Christians assembling together and forming a new geopolitical reality and marching under that white and blue and red cross Christian flag. That's not what he's talking about either. Rather, what Peter is saying is that in the same way that every nation, and the word there in the Greek is literally this, ethnos, ethnos. That's where we get our English word ethnicity from. Every nation, every ethnos, every people group, right? In the same way that they have a culture, so it should also be in the church. And Peter says the type of culture that ought to exist in the church is one of holiness. It ought to be a holy ethnos, a holy people group amongst all the peoples carved out for God and belonging to Him. Now, when it comes to this idea of culture, right? you can have macro cultures and you can have micro cultures. You can have big cultures and you can have subcultures. There's all kinds of subcultures across our community, aren't there? Right? You've got the fitness subculture right? just next door over here at the CrossFit, CrossFit gym. Okay? I see people out there running constantly up and down the road and they're lifting and they're grunting and they've got loud music playing in there. You've got the fitness subculture. Okay? Then up in front of that, you've got the road to nutrition. So you've got like this, this, this like paleo subculture, right? right? I'm only going to eat stuff that people ate like 4,000 years ago. Right? That's all I'm going to eat. You've got that kind of subculture, okay? You've got the fishing and hunting and outdoors subculture. And you've got, the, you, you've got all kinds of the foodie subculture. You've got all kinds of these little subcultures that have their own language and they have their own practices and they have their own ways of doing things, Right? But you also have larger cultures. You have the Mexican culture, or you have Russian culture, you have Japanese and Chinese culture, Indian culture, you have Canadian culture, South American culture. You have all kinds of macro cultures. Right? And so when Peter says that the church is to be a holy ethnos, a holy people group defined by a culture of holiness, 
what he's saying is this, that the difference between the church and the world is not like the difference between the outdoors subculture and the fitness subculture here within our nation, but it's like the difference from moving from, from Brazil to England. It's a whole new way of seeing everything. A whole new way of seeing everything. Because that's what culture is. Listen, culture is not what you see, but it is how you see. That's what culture is, right? Think of it this way. It may seem like I can make it plain. Listen, well, I, I told you I love the fish earlier. And because I love the fish, when I buy a pair of sunglasses, I always buy polarized sunglasses. Here's the reason why. Because if you wear a pair of normal sunglasses with normal, non-polarized lenses in them, and you go out onto the lake or onto the river, onto a body of water, and you look at the water, those sunglasses, they will dim the amount of light that the sun is putting out, right? But they don't do anything about the glare on the water. But whenever you put on a pair of polarized sunglasses, what happens is not only is that light dimmed, but the glare on top of the water is cut. And so you're able to see through the water. And you're able to see rocks and sometimes fish swimming around down there. But here's the problem. If they can see you, you can see them, they can see you. And they usually don't bite them. But you can see all kinds of stuff under the surface. But here's the deal. If you've got on regular sunglasses or polarized sunglasses, you're looking at the same thing. The same body of water. But you're seeing them differently because of the lenses that you're wearing. That's what culture is. Culture is not what you're looking at. It's how you're looking at it. It's how you're seeing it. So for instance, right? We all see the same money, okay? This green paper that they print on presses and spit out. Right? We all see the same money, but we see it differently as Christians than we see it as non-Christians. So coming to faith in Christ, being immersed, immersed in God's church means you see money just like everyone else sees money, but you see it differently than everyone else sees it. Right? Or you see gender, that God made us male and female in His image. Right? I can see by looking at someone, God made them this particular way. Right? But in the church, we must affirm and hold on to those distinctions. Right? We see it differently than the broader world that's around us. Right? Oftentimes outside the church, ethnicity is seen in one way. When it ought to be in the church, it ought to be seen a completely different way. Right? Because it's not what you're seeing, it's how you're seeing it. The church ought to have this holy ethnos, this holy people group, this holy culture that sees things through the lens of God's revelation, not our speculations. That's what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about the church being this set-apart society. So the church is not concurrent with any culture, but it's cut out from every culture. And it can celebrate aspects of every culture, but it also critiques aspects of every culture because it can, can embrace every aspect of any culture. It's not, I'm by myself, okay? But here's, here's <laughs> one of the things this means is this, okay? That God is not aiming to normalize any one particular culture. What He's aiming to do is sanctify each and every culture. 
not normalize anyone so that Western or Eastern culture is the one that wins, but sanctify Western and Eastern culture. He's not aiming to normalize black culture or white culture, but sanctify both cultures and the ways that they see things. I love the way Tony Evans puts it in his book, Oneness Embrace. He says it this way, our cultures must always be controlled by our commitment to Christ. Whatever, whenever we make the adjectives black, white, brown, or yellow descriptive of Christians, it may mean we have changed Christianity to make it fit a cultural description. The Bible teaches the opposite. We are Christians who are also black. Christians who are also white or brown or yellow. If anything changes, it is to be our cultural orientation, not our Christianity. This is because cultural history and experience, while important, is not innately inspired. Therefore, Christianity must always inform, explain, and if necessary, change our cultures, never the reverse. Never the reverse. I love the way he says it, because the church is to be this set-apart society that belongs to God. And if we're going to be that, if we're going to be that, church, then we have to be a culture of a, a, a people defined by holiness. And to do that, we have to learn, right, to sever and cut away every aspect of syncretism. Okay? Now, some of you are like, that's a big word, right? What does that mean? Syncretism is this. It's the combining of different beliefs and the blending of different practices from various schools of thoughts. How, let me see if I can make a plan. How many of you guys ever had a smoothie before, Right? smoothie okay and so you take all kinds of stuff you take strawberries and peaches and matcha I don't even know what that is but they put that stuff right scoops of stuff in that into a blender along with some ice right some fruit juice and then you take that blender and you close it up and you push the button and it goes right and it blends it all up together right and then you pour it into a cup and then you drink that stuff right a little protein powder, you got your fruit, you got all those things, man, all that nutritious stuff that's supposed to make your body feel good, cleanse you of all the toxins, right? So we drink smoothies. Essentially, syncretism is an intellectual smoothie. That's what it is. It's taking different, varying, oftentimes, sometimes conflicting viewpoints and trying to put them together in an intellectual blender, push the button, and blend it all up so they get mixed together. Right? That's what syncretism is. And syncretism has affected God's church in this nation in particular, I believe, in two, two very definite ways. Okay? There's been a blending where people, folks have taken the Bible and then they've taken their cultural lens okay? and they've put them together in a smoothie and they've blended it all up. I'm going to give you two examples of that. The first one first one, I would, I, would, I, I would call it this, other people would call it this as well, it's called American Civil Religion. It's American Civil Religion, right? American Civil Religion essentially this is syncretism, it's this smoothie that's been blended between American values and the Bible and brought those two things together, right? And it's been brought together oftentimes in such a way, right, that the Bible no longer critiques no longer critiques American culture, but it just is used to support everything that we do as a nation, right? 
this is prevalent and existent, and its evidence is plentiful. How else do you explain there being a market for publications like the Patriot Bible or the Founder's Bible, which take American history and blend it together with redemptive history to try to place America at the center of God's redemptive purposes in the globe? How else do you explain churches that feature the American flag next to the pulpit or celebrate America in patriotic services every 4th of July rather than celebrating Jesus on Sunday morning? How else do you explain one of the largest Baptist churches in Dallas hosting the vice president in their pulpit the last election cycle? How else do you explain the outrage among evangelical Christians over professional athletes kneeling during the national anthem, but you can hear crickets when false teachers stand in the church and teach things that are contrary to the word of God, or when reports surface indicating that there are tens of thousands of children being trafficked across this nation for perverse purposes, and the church is silent. How else do you explain the Jericho March in December of 2020 with self-proclaimed Christians gathering to march around the Capitol in support of the Lord and His anointed? How else do you explain the willingness of evangelical leaders to massage the truth and turn politicians into virtuous Christians? Talking about them as if they're baby Christians. Tony Evans says it this way, for far too long, the Anglo church has wrapped the Christian faith in the American flag often creating a civil religion that is foreign to the way God intended His church to function. Our nation's founding fathers are frequently elevated to the level of church fathers in the arguments for the U.S. being founded as a Christian nation. While we should celebrate and affirm the Judeo-Christian worldview that influenced the framework for the founding of our nation, yes, he says, the church must also be careful to judge the founders by their application of that same worldview. He goes on to say God's kingdom does not allow for human government to either trump his rule or get so close to influencing his church that it weakens the church's distinctive nature, presence, or biblical worldview operating in those particular cultures. And I fear that within our nation, American civil religion has become this syncretistic influence that we ought to be able to pull the church apart from. I'm grateful to live in a nation where we enjoy the freedoms we do. I'm grateful for the men and women who defend our nation and go to war. I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak into, right, in a constitutional republic and elect officials. I'm grateful for all those freedoms. Right? But I'm not willing to say that the, 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 that these, the Bible and America are the same. On the flip side, like I'm going to get it from both sides, right? <laughs> because if the church is to be unified, it has to change how it sees. How it sees. Not what it sees, but how it sees. We also have to sever our tie to cultural baptism. And here's what I mean by that. And again, Tony Evans' book, Oneness Embraced, I think is brilliant in this because he navigates it well. Because he not only critiques one side, but he can critique the other from a biblical kingdom perspective. He says this, he says, the objective truth from Scripture places limits on our cultural experiences. He says, as African Americans continue to seek cultural freedom, we must examine every strategy offered to promote social justice and policy under the magnifying glass of Scripture. 
every bit of advice given by leaders and all definitions proposing to tell us what it means to be black must be commiserate with divine revelation. If what we are given as cultural is not biblically acceptable, it cannot be accepted as authoritative. While Anglo-Christians, he says, have frequently wrapped the Christian faith in the American flag, African-American Christians have also merged tradition with faith by wrapping the Christian flag in black culture. At times, this has been done to such a degree that it has led to a failure in making the necessary distinctions that should reflect the kingdom-based approach to life. How else can you explain the overwhelming acceptance of musical and comedic artists who have some of the most lewd lyrics and degrading statements in their performances about the opposite sex while concurrently thanking their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? What's worse is the amount of applause that comes from this overwhelmingly Christian audience, both live and at home, at this illegitimate union of faith and culture. It is his absence of accountability, he says, and righteous judgment that keeps many in the African-American community from experiencing and fully realizing God's kingdom purpose for us in spite of the mammoth amount of God-given talent and creative genius with which our Creator has endowed us. This bifurcation... Right? Compartmentalization, essentially. This bifurcation between what is professed on Sunday and what is lived from Monday through Saturday limits our individual and collective progress. While some of the challenges we face in the black community truly emanate from the past and its personal and systemic aftermath, there are also many challenges that stem from our failure to properly take responsibility for and be held accountable to our actions, our morality, our families, the quality of services that we provide, as well as the proper management of our human and financial resources. Wrong is to be judged and changed, not applauded and excused with no consequence. He says, while I am not seeking to diminish the impact of racism on our our culture, I also want us to recognize that illegitimate or continual cries of racism are self-limiting and self-defeating. They simply foster a victim mentality that reinforces a pathology of dependency. Victimology can be defined as nurturing an unfocused strain of resentment rooted in a defeatist identity through which all realities are filtered rather than viewing challenges as opportunities to overcome. It is virtually impossible to be a victor and a victim at the same time. In God's kingdom, victimology negates the foundational theological truths of sovereignty and victory in Christ. If the church is going to be unified, it has to change how it sees. So how do we do that? How do we change how we see? We have to put on new lenses. And church, I got three of them for you this morning. I got, had two big points and one application. Put on different lenses, and there's three different lenses we have to put on if we're really going to change how we see. They're the lenses of the scriptures, the lens of prayer, and the lens of biblical community. The lens of scripture gives us truth to measure everything against and, the, and truth to cut away what is cancerous. Okay? In Amos chapter 7, God tells Amos that he's setting a plumb line in the midst of his people. Amos has this vision of God dropping a plumb line up against a vertical wall that's supposed to be going vertically, 90 degrees up and down. And so God uses a plumb line to measure it. And it's this image of God using a plumb line to measure the degree to which his people were reflecting his character and his holiness in the way that they conducted themselves. 
So this plumb line in Amos 7, and I want to tell you something, church. God has given a plumb line to his church, and it is revealed in his word. It's revealed in his word. It's a plumb line of scripture. Does it measure up against what God has said? All right, the lens of the Bible is, is, is paramount to us changing how we see. Immersing ourselves in the scriptures to live in accordance with who God has revealed himself to be in his word. Do my, ask yourself this question, do my attitudes, do my perspectives, are they plumb with the Bible? Or are there areas in which I'm leaning? If you want to say it to the left and right, you can say that, right? But is there, are there areas in which I'm leaning too far to one side or the other? Or am I plumb with what God has revealed in His Word? We're also told in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that God's Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide joint from marrow, piercing the division of the soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. See, God has given us a scalpel with which we're able to cut out everything that is cancerous in our own lives and in our churches, and it's right here in the book. It's right here in the book. Right? So if you're worried about the influences and effects of postmodern critical race theory, I want to say there are plenty of passages in the book to help cut that away and help us still see clearly our brothers and sisters made in the image of God. Without color blindness, seeing the ethnicity they possess and loving them and celebrating that with them but not embracing postmodern theory. So there's a plumb line and there's a scalpel to measure and cut away. Change how we see. In addition, the lens of prayer. I was reminded this week of the passage in Acts chapter 11 whenever Peter describes this vision that he has as he was what? Praying. As he was praying, he sees a vision of this sheep being lowered in front of him. You got all these types of animals that were forbidden for Jewish people to eat. And God says to Peter, what? Eat them. Right? Peter's like, no, I, I can't. Right? And three times, separate times, eat them, eat them, eat them. Insofar as whenever these folks show up to, to meet Peter, these Gentiles, and they say, listen, the gospel's advancing to places and peoples that we didn't think it would advance to, and Peter's able to affirm that, yes, God is taking the gospel not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, also to those, quote-unquote, unclean dogs in the Jewish mind. And so you, in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 15, it says this, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Holy Spirit comes down on the Gentiles. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Why does Peter have that change in the way that he sees? Because he was in prayer. Third, the lens of biblical community. Proverbs 27, 17 says this, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Iron sharpens iron, 
one man sharpens another. When you get around people who see the same things, but they don't see them the same way that you see them, then there is a sharpening that can take place as you sharpen them and they sharpen you. Right? Because you're both, well, again, we're not seeing different things. We're seeing things differently. And when you get around people who see the same thing, but they see it differently, you have a sharpening influence on them, and they're able to have a sharpening influence on you. God's given us these three tools of His Word, of prayer, and of each other to help us change not what we see, but the way we see so that it aligns with us being a holy ethnos that belongs to God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, today... I know there are difficult realities in the world in which we live. And as your church that belongs to you, we have a responsibility to preach the gospel to all peoples. We have a responsibility to love as you have loved. You've called us to that. In fact, the world has... The, the, your, your son said that the way that the world would know that we belong to you is by the way that we love one another. And so, Father, where we need change in the way that we see, would you bring it? Would you help our lenses be aligned with the Scriptures, not departing from them, not needing explanations outside of them. But would you measure everything in our lives personally and our life corporately as a body by the plumb line of your word and use it to cut away anything that is contrary, any of the line that has gotten tangled and wrapped around aspects of the cultures in which we find ourselves. Father, I pray that as we come in prayer, both individually and corporately, God, that you would cause scales to fall off our eyes, that we would see sheets being lowered down, that we would have visions of what you're doing in the world around us, that would change the way that we see where it's needed. And as we press into relationships with people who see things differently than we do, God, would you help them to shape us and help us to shape them so at the end of the day we could all say that we are more reflective of the image of Christ And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.